more important than the technique, than the pedagogy, is how we make the, our co-teachers feel about what they do. Because again, it goes back to that, my, my quote about like, students pay the highest price when teachers can't play nice. When we make teachers feel uncomfortable, they shut the doors on us. And therefore, when they shut the doors on us, the metaphorical doors, they also shut our opportunities to work with kids. And who's paying for that? It's the kids, not the teachers. Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. How might EL specialists establish and nurture relationships with content teachers who work with ELs? What are some simple strategies that can help make co-planning and co-teaching easier for all kinds of teachers? How can we encourage content teachers to allow their EL students to create as a more effective way of learning? We discuss these questions and much more in this lively conversation with Tan Nguyen. Tan Nguyen is a career teacher specializing in language acquisition. Tan has taught students from 5th to 12th grade in public schools, private boarding schools, and charter schools. Internationally, Tan has taught in schools in China, Laos, and Vietnam. He shares teaching strategies on his blog, Empowering ELLs, and has provided professional development training in places such as China, Thailand, Singapore, Italy, and Canada. Tan's goal is to support all teachers who are committed to empowering English learners, whether it be in a tweet, a blog post, a book, a training, a course, or over a coffee. Currently, he and others are preparing for the third annual Virtuel Conference, which is open to anyone for free online on Saturday, June 15th from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern Time. You can find out more about the conference by visiting bit.ly slash virtuel, that's capital V-I-R-T-U, capital E, capital L. You can follow Tan on Twitter at at Tan E-L-L Classroom. As the season two finale of Highest Aspirations, this episode is a little longer than most, but I think you'll appreciate the passion, metaphors, and analogies that Tan brings to the conversation. Finally, on behalf of all of us at Elevation Education, I want to take a moment to thank all our listeners who joined us during seasons one and two. We'll be back for season three in August. Until then, enjoy your summer, and don't forget to let us know how we're doing by leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. You can find all of our previous episodes anywhere you get your podcasts by searching Highest Aspirations. Let's get started. Tan Nguyen, welcome to Highest Aspirations. Thanks so much for joining us. I am so honored to be here. Thanks, Stephen. Yeah, it's our pleasure. We, uh, we've, we talked uh, probably about a month and a half ago now, had a really long conversation that I kind of wish we recorded that was very kind of informal, um, but, uh, but we're here now to actually do it and we're really excited. So let's start off with a little Highest Aspirations uh, fun fact. Um, I don't know whether people know or not, but we have done almost all of our interviews remotely. And we have had international guests, but you win the prize for being the farthest from Elevation's headquarters here in Boston. 
So I want to talk about, I thought it'd be interesting to start talking about sort of where you are in the world um, right now and how you ended up there. Well, I am in the future, 12 hours in the future. <laughs> it looks great. Um, That's I good to hear. Work, <laughs> it's always, it always looks great, the future. Um, I uh, currently work at an international school in Vietnam, and I've worked uh, in China before that, in Laos for six years, and currently now uh, I'm in a two-year contract in Vietnam, and I love it. So I work at a, a private into independent schools. It's like basically private schools overseas, um, and it's very similar to private schools in Canada and America. So I've been into IB schools and non-IB schools, um, and they're great. But I always like keep my heart thinking about the teachers who work in public schools because I know how hard it is for them. Yeah, for sure. I think every school has its own unique set of challenges, but there's certainly a lot of challenges that that everyone who's in this profession um, faces, particularly when working with um, with English learners. Um, and I just think, you know, I have to say, it, it's so amazing that you are able to kind of contribute everything that you can contribute um, sort of from where you are in the world um, and that we're all able to collaborate together through, you know, our PLNs and everything else. And that's how we found you. And um, that's sort of a testament to, I think, not only the technology that we're using, but the strength of this, um, of this Yale community and the people around it. So I just want to kind of start off by saying that and, you know, we're able to find you through all of these professional learning networks that, uh, that, that many of us are involved in. Yeah. I think that's like, I, I used to be like a, uh, scared of Twitter when people, when people would go to PD and they would say, or when I would attend PD and they'd say, Twitter, Twitter, this was like several years ago when Twitter came out um, and people were starting to use it as a platform. And I, I was like, no, I do not need another social media. Is this a social media for teachers? No. Like, and then reluctantly I got on and I was like, what have I been missing? Um, so I, I, think, I think there's a quote on the internet that says, um, I am not better because of Twitter. I'm better because of teachers I meet on Twitter. And, I, and so that's really where the root is. It's like, yes, people, so if you're listening to this podcast and you're like, wow, if I hear another person talking about Twitter, this is the reason why. It's because of the ideas that I never would get just from the, from the people in, in, my, in my building. They're great, phenomenal teachers. And they're also great, phenomenal teachers out there who are sharing. And so we have to tap into them. Absolutely. Well said. I, I don't really have anything to add there. If you feel like you need to listen to that again, go ahead and listen to it because I think you know you, you hit the nail on the head. So let's get into the topic that we're going to be discussing today, which is an important one and one that we hear quite frequently kind of requested um, in, in our EL community here at Elevation, and that's collaborating with content teachers. Um, yes. As most of us know, this can take so many forms, co-planning, co-teaching, informally sharing ideas in the hallway, sneaking into someone's class to see what's going on. I mean, there's so many different ways to do it. And it can be daunting and intimidating for some. So when we last spoke, you used an analogy that I really liked. Um, and what you said was you have to dress for the season when working with teachers. Um, I would love it if you could explain that analogy to our listeners as a way to get us started and particularly how it's sort of related to mindset. Yes. In I used to be a teacher who, when I started, when I started co like collaborating, co-teaching, and co-planning, my principal would have to sit me down and say, Tan, listen, you're like a porcupine. You're cuddly, but no one wants to come near you because of your spikes. <laughs> we know you're like professional. We know that you read literature. We know that you really care about kids, but you're, you're taking an evaluating role. 
because I, because I would see teachers do things and I would like cringe and I would suggest, uh, but not in very, and then not in very kind ways. And so I started to realize that, well, I need to stop and take a different approach. And the analogy is that when we look at seasons, humans live all over the world in different seasons, in different climates. And people thrive in hot ones and people thrive in cold ones. We even have like at the Olympics, there are two types of Olympics, one for cold season and one for uh, warmer seasons. And though there are different seasons, people thrive and people compete and people love and gravitate towards those things. So I'm saying, so my traditional, my initial phase of co-teaching where I would criticize and judge um, my co-teachers for their, uh, I would say, slow entry to working with ELs. Mm-hmm. Now I could say, oh, they are just in this season and, I, and this is our relationship. And uh, I have to make sure I can thrive in this, in this environment. Um, for example, let's say that there are teachers who are, um, our, relationships, our relationships might be really hot. And this is like really dynamic where things are moving Things are happening. The, 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 the co-teacher is really like seeing you as an equal. Kids see you as a co-teacher, not just a, a, a person who works with ELs. And this is great. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there are other ones that are a little bit cooler weather. Relationships where it's like, oh, I don't know if I can add an idea. I would, we, would call them, we would call them autumn relationships where you would just be gentle and like... Um, there are warm days in autumn and you take advantage of them. And then yeah. sometimes there are cold days in autumn and then you, you put on a scarf and that's okay. Um, and then there are even colder relationships where uh, for, for a multitude of reasons, the teacher is not, and we are not able to establish enough trust to really co-teach. And so everything is a little slower. Uh, things are a little more frozen. Um, it's a little more uh, touchy. So, but yet you can still, you can still thrive. Um, just, like we're, just like how we thrive in cold weather where we build snowman or we have um, winter festivals, we can do, still do the same thing with, with relationships that are not fully blooming yet. I think of like a tree. When we look at an apple tree in winter, we don't just go and chop it down because it's not blooming or not producing apples right we say oh you know what currently it's in this state and we have to just can just wait for it to thaw out and we are 50 percent of our co-teaching relationship so if we find that our relationship is cold we can do things to prolong the winter or we can do things to start thawing out the relationship and so that's the analogy i love it and you know just just sort of thinking about some words that come to mind as you explained that analogy was, first of all, I I really appreciate you talking about your own experience and thinking about how you sort of started off in this work and how you're 50% of that equation. And you sort of noticed how during using the sort of porcupine analogy that at one time, you know, you didn't do this work as well as you are now. And so you use that to kind of build the empathy and the understanding that you needed And then you use the power of observation, just as someone would observe an apple tree in the wintertime, you can observe a teacher and understand where they are to kind of understand whether, you know, that person needs a coat or maybe the air conditioner needs to be put on. I just think that's so crucial. And the foundation of all that, I mean, is really just 
just the same with our students, right? It's empathy and understanding. Yes. Like we can read our kids. The second they walk into our rooms, we can tell, okay, Johnny needs a minute or like, okay, this is going to be a great day for Johnny. As we read our kids, we need to use the same skill sets to read our teachers. Yeah. Yeah. And in understanding that many of these teachers, you know, particularly a lot of the ones that we work with here. Um, and I, I, you know, I trained on Elevations products for quite a while and I was a teacher for a long time. And you have to really understand that somebody who has never really worked with English learners before and is all of a sudden confronted with a demographic change um, where their their world has been turned upside down. I mean, they're, maybe, you're, maybe it's a math teacher or a, a chemistry teacher who is now expected to be a teacher of language. Maybe they've been teaching for 25 years. Um, I think we real. I really appreciate you bringing to light that we are fifty percent of that. We need to under understand that because I think, in sort of in, in, in an idealistic point of view, in many ways, we sort of look at those people as 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 the problem. Um, when it's really a systemic situation that we need to recognize. Yeah, exactly. There's a quote. Um, I'm gonna. I don't know who it's by, but it says, it, "It's coming up right now." I'm sorry. It says, "Teachers do not fear change. Teachers fear not being supported." when asked to change. And that's by Marie Savinik. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so true. Like they, they don't fear change. They just are, feel, you're right. They, they've never really worked with ELs before. They're asked to do it as an inclusion model now. And now they feel maybe insecure. They feel like, oh, I've been teaching for 20 years. I don't know. I feel like when I'm not able to help ELs, it's a reflection of my professionalism. Yes. And so that goes back to another quote that I've, I've been using with teachers when I talk to them about the 50% of the relationship. I tell them that every interaction is either a deposit or a withdrawal. And so, but the thing is, it takes more, the withdrawals are higher in denominations than the, the, with, than the, than, than the deposits. Meaning when we do something that, hurts or offends or or the co-teacher can feel that we're judging them that is like a huge withdrawal and it takes us multiple mini deposits of positive interactions to really right that wrong yeah you know you have such a good way ton of of putting these these sort of analogies together and i think that you know i I really appreciate that because if we don't have sort of a way to look at these things, whether it's seasons or deposits and withdrawals, it can be really hard to put it together. And I, you know, I, I pre, as I read through your, your, your contributions and as I speak with you more and get to know you more, um, I just want to say that, you know, I really appreciate that. And I'm sure our listeners do um, as well. Getting into some sort of specific scenarios and situations where these kind of analogies might apply. Yes. I think we all know, I mentioned it earlier, that you know, not only do content teachers, um, or maybe, maybe they're faced with a new situation, they're maybe afraid all those effective filters go up just as they do with their students, but perhaps uh, time is an issue as well. So let me ask a, a, a specific question that I imagine is top of mind from any sort of busy teacher who's listening to this uh, episode, and that is, what do I do as an EL specialist or an EL teacher, someone who wants to support a content teacher? I understand all the seasons, but I only have like five minutes. What, what, what might I be able to do in like a passing conversation that can either help that person with a particular situation or just help build that relationship 
so that you can work together more effectively. Okay, so I'll answer. I have two ways to answer that. You asked about the relationship, even in five minutes. So Andrea Hagensfeld said, um, like she's a guru, and Maria Dov is a guru of uh, collaboration for EOs and our field. Yep. And she said, every time we interact with teachers, we should leave them with um, a compliment, and that's how we really develop a relationship. Um, when I when she first said that, I instantly thought about some of my teachers uh, in the past. Where I'm like, oh, that would be really hard to do so, <laughs> because it's really, it's really, really hard. Like, oh, hey, you're doing a great job breathing today, and like, well, so I moved to this philosophy where if you cannot compliment, then at least say thank you for something. For example. Um, I, I, I might say, you know what, I really thank you for letting me work with these three students today on this particular part of their report. When you allowed me to do that, it just made me really able to help, it made them develop their language skills much more specifically. So that's, a, so if you can't compliment, then say, hey, I'm grateful for this, or like, I really liked when you, or I felt grateful for this. Yeah, I appreciate you giving the, the sort of the sentence stems and the, and the backup for if you can't give a compliment. That's a realistic way to look at things. I appreciate yes. that. Go on. Because sometimes you can't give a compliment, but you can always find a way to be grateful. You, you know what you say? Uh, yeah, just find a way to say, hey, I'm grateful for this today. And it's not like they, like our co-teachers are the ones who are owning the power when we, when we, when we say I'm grateful for. Like it's saying, I recognize that it's tough and you, by you, by the content teacher doing something, that has allowed you to support the kids. That's why you say, I'm grateful when you're sure. doing this. And it's not flattery, right? I mean, you're, you're, yeah. that's, I think that's the key. You have to avoid, you know, that's why giving a compliment sometimes is so difficult because you don't want to just flatter someone for the sake of flattering them. You want to say something yes. that's true and real. Yes. So let me answer the other first part of the question. You say you only have five minutes. Okay. So, um, what I go through is I go through uh, a protocol called CPP. And so I first ask, okay, so you have five minutes to plan. What is your content? What is your process? Of, so content meaning, what are you gonna teach? And then I go into product, uh, process. How will you teach that? And then the last one is product. By the end of the lesson, what do you want your students to be able to do? Can I run uh, that process with you? If you like, let's pretend that you are a co-teacher. So I am the co-teacher. Go ahead. So uh, we meet each other in the hallway, and then uh, you, and then we'll have a quick conversation. So we'll say, "Hey, Steve, what are you going to do with the with the kids?" Well, the idea is to go through a short story that we're that we're reading uh, that has some complicated vocabulary in it. Ah, okay, short story. So you're going to do so. That's your content. Um, so you're going to read to the kids. Great. By the end of the period, what do you want the kids to do? Well, I'd really like them to be able to engage in a, in a conversation about the content of that particular story. And I'm really interested in the idea of symbolism. Ah, okay, great. So you're saying symbolism and you really want them to talk about symbolism. Okay, um, what I can do, if you'd like, uh, I can go and um, work with a small group of kids to... Uh, do guided reading with them, focusing on symbolism. Um, as I do that, maybe I can also give a sentence stem for kids 
or why don't we just make um, a little really simple t-chart where on one side it's the symbol and we can draw the image for the kids and on the other side is I, we can do a meaning. So that's a really simple low prep thing you could do for your kids. Just make it really explicit. And you might say, here's a sentence starter. You might say, um, the author, uh, blank is a recurring, say the, the tree is a recurring symbol in the book. And then that's the, the symbol. And mm -hmm. you would say, it represents, or its deeper meaning represents dot, 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 dot. So that was like less than five minutes. Um, so, we went through, so we went through content, which was short story. You were gonna have kids read, so that's a process. And then I was really focusing on the product because EL's kids wanna feel like they're doing the exact same thing their friends are doing. Absolutely, and so which, which affects their motivation because it's yes. their relevance, yeah. Yes. So I, would I was focusing on saying, okay, if they're engaging in symbolism, whether it's talking or writing, so I want them to make sure that they do the same thing. So again, the, the, the idea of like, we keep the mountaintop the same height, we just take a different path to get there. Mm -hmm. Or we add more supplies, or we add a Sherpa for them to get there. Yeah, and you know, I, 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 tried, to, I tried to really think of something in that little sort of uh, role play that, that wasn't uh, simple. I mean, I think, you know, teaching a short story and you want to get people to talk about symbolism is hard for a seniors in high school, you know, that are, that are, that are native English speakers. Um, and so I tried to give you something that was a little challenging. I think, you know, you were able to give sort of two examples, one, a little bit, perhaps more high stakes where the, the specialist actually comes in the class and supports, which for some teachers is fantastic. And some teachers, like if I'm that person, I'm saying, great, let's make that happen. But if somebody's a little bit more reticent um, to sort of being, you know, maybe they feel like they're being judged in class, and we're going to get into this in a minute, or they don't they're not ready yet for kind of a visitor to come in, then you have that T-chart example, which is a lot more simple, but I imagine a great entryway into not only providing something concrete that someone can use in less than five minutes, I think we did that in about one minute, um, but also uh, laying the foundation for what could be later a stronger uh, relationship that would allow you to be kind of a part of that class. Yes, and that goes back to every interaction is a deposit of withdrawal. Everything we try to do was is is a yes and. So when you were saying short story, and you are saying yes short story, and what do you want to do? You want to read? Yes, great. And what what's the main thing you want to do with them? Oh, I want them to engage in symbolism. Okay, great. And here's how I can help the kids. So that's a philosophy that has served me, um, and I hope that has can serve teachers as well. We, we take it from improv where yeah. actors are, are throwing things at each other. And the worst thing we could do is say no, because it really stops the, the play. Right. But when we say yes and, it continues. And it really goes back to that philosophy of like every interaction is a deposit or withdrawal. Because teachers really, like Mary, um, Maya Angelou said that people will forget what you did, they will forget what you said but they will never forget how you made them feel. So in my interaction, I always would feel, I still remember one time there was a teacher who, it was, it was an IB class, it was teaching something about, uh, something about history, and, he, and the teacher had kids read this archaic text. I have a, two, I have a master, and I'm thinking, I don't understand this text. And I like have strategies to read and understand, I don't understand this text. And I went 
to him and I said, oh, I emailed him at late at night. I was like, hey, my students just showed me this. You're using this next, why would you do that? Can you do something else? And he was so frazzled. And so that was like early in my collaboration, collaboration phase yeah. in my career. And now- The porcupine days. Yes, the porcupine days. <laughs> Cuddly and soft, but yet prickly. No one wants to know that, right? But now I'm like, I would say, yes, this is fine. You want to use this? Here's how I can help the kids. And so that, that's the little way we can like add little positive deposits to the relationship. I love it. You know, I just, I just want to emphasize the skill or the sort of technique that you brought up from improv because the more that I sort of have uh, relationships with people, whether they're students or teachers or even like, you know, on this podcast and you're, you're speaking with people and it's, 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 you just never kind of know what's going to happen next. I constantly talk to people about these improv skills, that yes and thing. And I think like anybody, it's, this is, might be a little off topic, but I don't think it is really. I think everybody can benefit from learning those simple techniques. Um, and I was just speaking with a colleague this morning, like literally just now about the power of improv um, in, in making sure that you're sort of able to take down barriers, establish relationships, continue conversations that might otherwise die in the vine. So I really appreciate you bringing that up as well. Yeah, we need to have a yes and philosophy because collaboration is not assigned, it's earned. So even though we might be assigned like on paper by our principal and our admin to support certain students or to go to certain classes, that doesn't necessarily mean they're gonna, teachers are gonna work with us. So we really have to, go beyond assign, being assigned to earning respect, or sorry, earning trust. That's yeah. the most important part. Really great point, and I'll repeat that little quote because it's another gem. Uh, collaboration is not assigned, it's earned. Yeah, I think that's, that's another great sort of philosophical way to look at things. Yeah. Another way to say yes, Anne, is this. So I, this me used to understand. I used to, so I would be in a co-planning meeting and someone would give an idea and I would go, oh, well, and I would be gentle with it and say, well, maybe we should do this instead. And the teacher, you, would, you could feel the, the energy in the room like cool a little bit. You could feel them like, because when we say, instead of this, let's do that, they feel that there's a slight form of rejection. Sure. So now I say, um, when working with, when co-planning as much as possible, build on their ideas before offering completely new ones because they if I, I'm, I'm just thinking if i say there's a 20-year teacher who's a year a teacher who has 20 years of experience and has this idea we should use that because the teacher is already familiar there's already background knowledge there's always expertise there's already probably resources we just simply have to tweak it slightly to make it really relevant or it's really to make it um El friendly, absolutely, and just the just the basic you know idea of validating people's ideas is crucial. And you know you're right; you take the wind out of the sails completely when you say, you know, let's do this instead. I mean, you're just not. Did, however, that idea may go over, and however you may know in your head that it's probably not going to work with a particular group of students, yeah. it doesn't do much good to completely you know take the wind out of any sales, you know, that's just, you're shutting a conversation down when you really need to continue it and establish a foundation. 
Yes. And I'll give you out like this whole podcast would be metaphors because I was speaking metaphors. I love it. It's great. Because I'm a visual person. I think I, I encourage teachers to be like water because water takes the shape of the container that holds it. So when we work with our co-teachers, they are the container and their content is the container. And we simply have to take the shape of whatever the container is holding us because that's the shape that our kids are in. They can't change their teachers. Sure. And, and we can't change them either. And so we shouldn't seek. So I think that the quote is, there was a quote I need to find if you I'll find it later, but it says, um, it's not about how well you play the game. It's what game you're playing. So when I used to be a porcupine teacher, I, I played a different game. My game was evaluating teachers and trying to professionally develop them in for the sake of kids. Which, by the way, I think is a pretty common game that a lot of people are still playing. <laughs> yes. yes. And then my life changed and my work with teachers changed when I played a different game. And my, now my game is focusing on what I can do for students. And so when I, like, let's say that you and I have a, a, a cold winter relationship. Like, I'm not saying you're a winter teacher. I'm saying our relationship is colder. Mm -hmm. And I would say, oh, okay, so um, you're doing, you're doing, you're reading stories. You're going to read out loud and you want kids to do symbolism. Maybe the text is, is uh, really hard. And maybe I wouldn't use that text, but that was, that's an old model of saying that's the old game of me trying to change you. The current model that I use is the current game that I play now is like, okay, this is the text you want kids to read. Let me help kids read that text. Well, I can do whatever I can to help kids. Yep. That's, the, that's the mindset shift. That's the thinking about what game we're playing. Yeah, and then we're all on the same team because, you know, yes. everybody cares about the kids, which is crucial. Yes. Yes, great analogy. Yes, you're adding that to the analogy. We're really on the same team. We have different, different positions and we do have different approaches, but really on the same team for the kids. Yeah. I have like another quote. I keep going. Let's hear it. This is like a passion for me. For me. And I, um, the quote is, when the students pay the highest price when teachers can't play nice. So it, it's perfectly nicely because grammatically correct, but I like how it rhymes. Yeah. So, so teach, you got to sacrifice for the, you know, for the poetic. Know. <laughs> so students pay the highest price when teachers can't play nice. And so that's when we go back to that idea of like, yes, and that goes back to the idea of like every interaction is, is a deposit or withdrawal. And, yep. and that's, Back to the analogy of like every season, you can thrive in every season. And going back to your analogy of saying we're all on the same team. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's put this into practice with kind of a common um, strategy or process that's used in most schools with English learners. And that's, you know, with push in and pull out uh, models. So I'm going to readily admit that as a classroom teacher, perhaps in my porcupine days, um, I would be, I would be, uh, I wouldn't be very happy when kids were constantly pulled out of my room because for me at that time, it was like, this is my time with these students. I want to get them to a certain place in my content. And I wasn't really thinking about the, the big picture. And I think that, I think that I, I, I've come a long way since then. 
Um, but I, I do think that there are many teachers who sort of feel the same way for a variety of reasons. So, uh, you know, this sort of territoriality of like, you know, what happens in my room, I need to have control over and I don't want kids coming and going. I'm curious as to how we might sort of shift mindsets or even you and I have talked about have talked a little about naming conventions to make these models more palatable for teachers, specialists, and most importantly for the students we are serving. Yeah. Yes. So um, when we you you kind of talked about it already. When we talk about pushing, we the if someone's pushing in, explicitly someone is pushing against. And that's usually teachers that can be like you you just said oh in my past i i don't want teachers to be pulling students out mm -hmm. so there's a resistance there uh, but also kids when we um push in like that they might feel that they are being targeted instead we focus on if you have so i so when i have chance when i have, when i have an opportunity to, to co-plan with my content teachers i don't push anymore i call that co-teaching because since we've already planned our instruction mm -hmm. together i'm equally the teacher so therefore i can co-co-co-teach and co-instruct as well so uh also when we talk about pull out which is also a, mo a model that is slowly going away which is great when mm -hmm. we pull kids out the someone is pulling against and that's either teachers, which is great because they want kids to stay in, but it also can be students because they don't want to feel different. And so when I, um, when people call pull out, I also say, well, if you haven't planned with the teacher, then you call that in-class support. Mm -hmm. But if you need to pull out, why don't you just stay in the class and have small group instruction? This might mean a mixed group of ELs and non-ELs working with you. And so this is, we really move away from the idea of territory where we push in and pull out to saying co-teaching. That, that aside, the naming conventions aside, the idea that we are co-teaching and co-planning together and working together leads me to kind of my next, my next question that I, was, that I wanted to, to discuss a little bit was the whole idea of, you know, one of the reasons that we had this pull out sort of situation for lack of a better term or taking students out of the classroom to have direct instruction with an EL specialist or whatever is because we have had for so long, and I think it's changing, this kind of sage on the stage approach, right? Where, you know, if, if there's no way we can do small groups if the teacher's lecturing the entire time and the, the students aren't doing anything um, on their own. So here's my next question. As an EL specialist or as someone working with a content teacher, what do you recommend uh, for sort of helping teachers shift the, from being that sort of stage in the stage to this new idea of kind of guide on the side, which is a larger educational issue, I, I readily admit. But how do, you, how do you sort of help a teacher get there in an effort to help really all of her students, but perhaps specifically her English learners? Um, so I would say set learning as an opportunity to create. So when we have sage on the stage experience or an approach, sage on the stage approaches, I have information that I need to give you to, to give you content. And so I'm going to deliver it to you. But if we do a different, if we use a different approach and we say, okay, with the content that you want students to learn is the way that we can have kids create. And in the act of creating, they engage with content, they internalize content 
skills and knowledge more, but they also really develop their language skills much more. And when we create, we also give opportunities for students to interact with each other. And that's really where learning takes place because Pajia said, all learning is social. When we can set, here's the reality. The truth is, except for like a, a little elementary school kids, middle school and high school kids, they come to school for one reason, they're friends. Yep. Not for teachers, not really to learn. We in school, is just, it's just, it just happens to be the thing that they have to get through to be able to hang out with their friends. Absolutely. And, and to and recognize so, that, like, I appreciate you recognizing that because it's another one of those things that we're afraid to say. But as yes. like, as I reflect on my own experience, my experience as a teacher, and now my experience as a parent with, by the way, two middle school girls, like yeah. I totally recognize that. And it's crucial to understand it. When you understand it, you can work around it and use it as an advantage. Sorry, go on because I'm, I think I'm stealing a bit of your thunder. Please continue. No, that's great because it's really about, okay, so let's go back to your idea of that, that short story and symbolism, right? So we, we might say, okay, um, to even before we go into, oh, actually, let, 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 let's take that story. As students are reading and we analyzing um, the symbols in the story, the mm -hmm. product might be having kids make a song together that includes symbols or going to get songs that they actually listen to and pull out symbolisms in the lyrics that they already listened to. And what they can do is they can create a really quick Google slide where they can go share their, their, their slide and they can co-create, um, they can have an image of, of the symbol, either in the story or a symbol from um, a song that they know. And then they can explain the meaning of it. But in the process, they're working in small groups. They're anal and that, this is why I love creating because students have to uh, think deeply instead of regurgitate. But also yeah. as the students are creating and partnering with each other, they're giving ideas, but their friends have to evaluate that idea. And in that evaluating, you get critical thinking. You get, the, you, get, you get listening skills. If it was sage in the stage approach, it would be one, one person or the teacher asking a question. The student is answering. One student answers. Everyone is like, yes, I don't have to answer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The person who's doing the thinking of evaluating is the teacher, not other students. And this is why I would recommend to that teacher to say, well, how can we turn this lesson and um, add a little collaboration to it and add, and in the collaborating, that's just not just talking and hanging out, but they're actually creating something from the content. And how do you leverage in a situation like that? Because I think like a lot of this is about the teacher sort of relinquishing some amount of sort of, for lack of a better term, control of the class. Like one term that I, that I just don't really like is classroom management, but it's a term that's used frequently and yes. people are evaluated on it. And classroom management to some people means like I control everything that goes on here. And so my question is, I think it's a challenging one, um, is that if you have decided, okay, I'm going to let go of control here. I am going to allow students to create with one another. I'm going to do the activity that you just mentioned with a Google slide where people are collaborating. How do you go about differentiating for those ELs that you have in your classroom in a way that 
isn't going to sort of drive you crazy. And this, this idea sort of comes from, um, Larry Falasso put out some videos, um, and Katie helps Neski as well about like differentiating without losing your mind. So this is like a perfect, I feel like scenario that's real that we might be able to talk about. How do you go about maybe supporting, since this is what the, this episode is about, supporting a classroom teacher so that that person does not completely lose her mind in a situation where she has everybody kind of creating and everybody's at a different level. What supports can you put in place for that person to be successful? So I would go back to that CPP thing where we talk about content, product, and process. Mm-hmm. That comes from Tomlinson's idea of differentiation, but I also use it for planning. So I would say, okay, you want kids, thank you for um, taking this idea of, of having create, students create Google Slides for, to show their s- the symbolism that they found in the text. Here's how we could change, uh, differentiate just the content for kids. For some kids, you might say, I want you to look at this section of text only because it's, it's less overwhelming for kids if they have to read their entire text. We want them to read their entire text. But in the product phase, when they're making their product or the assessment phase, maybe we just have them say, hey, in this section, I think it's really accessible for you. This section is, is, has really rich examples of symbolism. Why don't you focus on just these three paragraphs? So that's a really quick differentiation. The teacher does not have to do anything. Mm-hmm. But you're saying, focus here. Or I simply, you might say, think about your kids, the three kids who you think might benefit from that. And that, that the teacher would use that, that model. So it's, that's really quick. Maybe a process might be, say, um, you might say, Take three kids that you think might need the guided support more, the most. You would just give your attention to them more. Um, another process thing you might say, oh, as kids are creating groups, maybe let's have them work in same home language grouping. Pretty easy. Those two last strategies for process is pretty easy. The teacher doesn't have to do any prep. The teacher just pulls a small group of kids together and, they work, and the teacher works with, with them. The, the other strategy for process is that um, the teacher groups kids together based upon home language. And that's really easy. There's no prep for them. And then the last one, the product might be um, they can create a uh, you might give them sentence starters to help them with their, their Google Slides product. And that's really easy. That's really no prep as well. And so that's how I would do it for that model. Yeah, some great examples. And I really appreciate you giving ideas that really, uh, and, and they truly do not require um, a whole lot of preparation, if any. And I think that that's what we need because too often teachers are overwhelmed and we give them strategies that require them to really do a whole lot of work that is frankly extra. But if we start to think outside the box a little bit and use um, these little tools like the CPP um, model that, that you, that you uh, alluded to, I think it allows us to kind of have enough structure where we can put into place strategies um, and differentiated you know, sort of instruction that is not difficult to put into place, which I think is, is, is so crucial. Yes. That's what you, I like what the, uh, the alliteration you just had. You said differentiation doesn't have to be difficult. I didn't even know I did it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm an English teacher. Well, and, and what makes differentiation difficult is teachers thinking that they have to make 33 plans for 33 kids. Right. It's really just, I think differentiating for ELs is really just saying, it's just task specific or uh, experience specific or 
assignment specific. It's not everything all the time. It's just choosing when and being selective with that and releasing sure. the, the pressure of having to change content, product, and process, all three. Just pick one. And that's enough. Great points. All right. Well, let's, I have kind of one more question for you, um, sort of process question and strategies kind of question before we get to um, some recommendations that you might have in terms of resources. You know, we know that teaching, um, it, certainly not in, in the perfect world that I think that we are talking about here, but in many ways, um, it continues to be kind of a lonely profession. People can be siloed. Um, it's, it's sometimes it's really difficult to get out of that silo of your classroom, even if you want to do it because of time, because of the, the workplace, whatever the situation may be. So my question is for those teachers who are working in an environment that is not extremely collaborative, where they're not really getting the collaboration and the PD that's really accessible and contextualized and specific to their uh, situation, wh what do you recommend they do? Like how can they, where can they go to kind of um, learn from others and to begin sort of implementing some of the uh, tools and strategies that we talked about earlier if they're in one of those schools where there's just lots of silos of different classrooms? So in a school where there are silos, there still has to be one person who you have somewhat, so I guess going back to the analogy of seasons, right? switching from silos, um, there has to be some, there has to be at least one teacher there who's like, like, who you have a spring relationship or like a warmer autumn relationship. Work with those teachers and they will build your reputation for you. For example, um, I have in the past, let's say that I'm on a, on a team of uh, four teachers, for example, and let's say that one of those teachers, I have a really, we have a really cold relationship, a really winter relationship. Um, but the other team member, I have a really great warm relationship, a summer spring relationship with them. We go to a meeting and the, uh, the one teacher says, oh, hey, I use this strategy with Tan, or Tan gave me this, this worksheet, or Tan gave me this graphic organizer, or he, he gave me this advice. I think it's really great. And in that incident, at that, at that event, the uh, teacher who I have a quarter relationship with, he, she turned to me and he said, hey, can you share what you, would, you did in Blake's class? And that's how you make the change. I guess it goes back to that 80-20 principle where you focus on the 20% that will give you 80% of the results. Yeah. Because yep. um, sometimes we always focus on working with the, our efforts. We give 80% of our efforts working on the 20% that will give us only 20% of the results. So we need to switch that and say, okay, maybe we don't have, we don't have a, the trust. We don't have enough trust. And I might be doing something that is causing us not to have enough trust. Uh, so right now, I will continue to be positive as much as possible and have positive interactions. But in the meantime, I'm going to really focus my energy, my emotional uh, capacities, my intellectual capacities on working with a teacher who's willing and ready because they will be our vanguard. They will, they will be holding our banner and they'll be the models for other teachers because that's what teachers really want to see. They're like, oh, can I trust you? Mm -hmm. And when, when they see that we are working with the 
their colleagues, that's how they can trust on us. Yeah, that's a great so that's point. A the low tech, the low tech one is to seek out folks who are, um, who are, who are willing to collaborate in a sense so that we can kind of spread the word, get our yes. kind of brand out for lack of a better term. And hopefully that organic grassroots effort kind of permeates and spreads throughout yeah. the school. The low tech way is really the high touch way. It's really about, about taking the, the relationships that you already have and investing in those relationships. And by the way, I think it's like, we have a tendency, I think now let's say that to look at low tech as somehow not as, as valid, but it's yeah. so important. It's so crucial. These are relationships. We're humans, no matter what technology we have out there. I think that high touch model, especially in situations like the one we're describing now, it, are really crucial. Yes. Because it's all about the relationship. I think the most important thing is keeping the most important thing, the most important thing. That comes, a quote comes from um, Johnny Quick. He has a podcast and he said that. And I said, wow, the most important thing in our field is relationships. More important than the technique, than the pedagogy, is how we make the, our co-teachers feel about what they do. Mm -hmm. Because again, it goes back to that, my, my quote about like, students pay the highest price when teachers can't play nice. When we make teachers feel uncomfortable, they shut the doors on us. And therefore, when they shut the doors on us, the metaphorical doors, they also shut our opportunities to work with kids. And who's paying for that? Right. It's the kids, not the teachers. Absolutely. All right. Well, as we begin to wrap up here, and by the way, I think the high tech, we kind of know where the sort of tech model is and that's, you know, connecting through Twitter. And we've talked about that quite a bit on the podcast and we talked about it at the beginning here. Um, so we won't dive too deeply into that, but I think both of us, Tan, you and I have learned that it's a great place to um, connect with like-minded folks and to get ideas and exchange information and collaborate. But I'm interested in hearing about other resources or books, perhaps, that have had an influence on you, either personally or professionally. This is something that we do in every episode. We've collected this really great library um, of books that we tend to share at the end of each season. So is there a book or resource that has influenced you um, in a profound way that you'd like to share? Yes, um, I have several. But before I go into that, can I also talk about one more thing about planning? Please do. If you, because we talked about like the, if teachers have five minutes to plan, which is very normal. Uh, but for the, for the experiences where we have 45 minutes or extended periods or 90 minutes to plan, what, we, what I um, encourage teachers to do is focus on um, like a vertical, a vertical uh, line graph from, from, from the bottom down going straight up, like an increase, increasing line. The bottom part is like the low impact. Which those things are I call I call like putting out the fires. Like, okay, let's make what are we doing today? What are we doing tomorrow? But our planning time, the time that we are given, we should move away from those as much as possible and go on that increasing line and focusing on the high impact things, such as creating assessments, creating rubrics, creating unit plans, creating things that are long term, unit long, semester long, that that will really help kids in the future. For example, let's say that I am, we know that in this unit, kids are doing a narrative piece of writing. My 45 minutes of planning really should be focused on creating a rubric for kids, co-creating a rubric with the content teacher to say, hey, what are the parts of the narrative rubric that we really, really, really want to teach? Or what do we expect kids to do? Let's put that in a rubric. 
Yeah, where do we where do we want the students to get backwards planning? Yes, right? Exactly, backwards backwards planning, uh, planning by design, uh, understanding by design. So after that meeting, when we don't have lots of time, we still know what we're doing because we have that that we have that long term high impact rubric that we can always go back to, and that's what I really encourage. Think about as much as I know how tomorrow is important. If we have planning opportunities after we address the tomorrow issues, we have to invest our or give most of our time to planning things that have the highest impact assessments unit planning rubrics long-term projects groupings etc yeah i appreciate you bringing that up and i you know i it's something that i think it would have been a missed opportunity if you didn't so thank you so much for bringing that up toward the end here we talked about the five minute planning toward the beginning and now we get into the uh, the longer term and the or if you have a little extra time so thanks for no that worries so you talked about books um, for collaboration, since this, is the, this podcast topic is about collaboration, I really recommend um, uh, Andrea's book, Andrea's Hannesfeld, and, and uh, Maria's Dove's book called uh, Collaboration and Co-Teaching. It's a phenomenal guide. It's like one of the only guides for um, how to co-plan and co-teach and collaborate, and the philosophies around that for EL teachers and content teachers. So that's a great resource. General, general teaching all around. Um, I would recommend um, Carol Salva's book for boosting achievement, which specifically works mm -hmm. with kids who are students who are, uh, have limited or interrupted formal education. Another one is EL Excellence by Tanya Ward Singer. Um, and then another one, of course, you talked about Larry. Larry has a new book that just came out last March that's called Toolkit. And if I love my books that are like narratives and that are long, that are like chapters, and I love reading those because those are really those are like stories to me. Um, mm -hmm. But Larry offers a different uh, tool. He says, "Listen, here's a list. Here's a book with a hundred ideas. I've showed you the research. There's not going to be a lot of narratives. It's just going to be research, strategy, implement, go." And so all I have to do is like a flip and go. All I have to do with mm -hmm. Larry's book is just read, go to the index, find, oh, strategy on helping kids read more closely, go to that page, flip open, read, and implement. So that's, that's why. It's kind of like the dessert. If, 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 if what we're reading with the other resources are like meaty, heavy, applicable things, um, Larry's book is like a quick sugar boost to, to get us going. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. It's yeah, I mean, and and uh, I, I'm familiar with all of those. Uh, Carol and uh, he was on the podcast in season one, and we had a great conversation. And Larry, we just released his podcast episode pretty recently here in season two, um, and so really great resources and folks that I've been lucky enough to talk to. But all three of those books I'm familiar with, um, and I really appreciate you um, bringing those up. And this and you one. was oh sorry oh please go ahead unlocking English learners' potential. Um, by Diane Stefaner and Sydney and mm -hmm. Snyder. I guess I, I'm saying all these things. These are like fish that we're, we're, we're giving you, teachers. But the, but the thing that we want to show you how to fish is really joining ELL, uh, ELL Chat Book Club. That's where we gather around. And you were talking about silos, how people feel like they're islands and they feel mm -hmm. like they're alone. I think Katie, Katie Topol and I, another person on Twitter, um, decided to just read text together about ELs. And we actually started with um, collaborating and co-teaching with 
of with Andrea. And we said, well, why don't, why don't we just invite other people, whoever, wanna, whoever wants to read? And then now, three years later, we've read 17 books. All the books that, that we've just mentioned are books we've had on, on our book chat. And people from around the world come together for about five weeks per book, and they just read chapters slowly. And then throughout that week, they answer questions at the slow chat. They don't have to be on the same timeline, same time, time zone to, to speak. They can just take pictures of what they're reading, share, talk about what they're doing. And that's how you feel like you're a part of a community. And that's, that's how I feel like I'm really connected to, to people in the field who are doing phenomenal things. And so that's the fish. That's the, these books that I'm giving you are like fish, but what we really want you to do is just join the community so that you can uh, learn to fish. Yeah, for sure. And it's worth mentioning that the authors of these books are quite frequently, if not always involved yes. in, uh, in those Twitter conversations, which is really cool. Um, and, and the authors I know, you know, are excited about, I, we interviewed as well, Helen Thorpe, um, who's author of the newcomers, who I think was, that book was featured on that chat. Was it yes. not? Yeah. And she, she was, she was really excited about, you know, the author herself just being, you know, the, the subject of this, this Twitter chat. So establishing a community with not only the people who are reading them, but the authors makes it a really, really interesting thing. Yeah. Nowhere else can you like tweet or nowhere else can you hang out with authors like that? Like, you can't, no, like, so I, I've seen JK Rowling's Twitter handle and she has like millions of followers. She only follows 200, but imagine like, her, if she was part of a book club and she's talking about her books, and that would be, yeah, that, that's what basically we have. We have like the JK Rowling's of, of in our like the JK Rowling's of teachers, of authors in our profession. Like the fact that we can talk to Jana Echeverria, like the one of the three co founders of the SAP model, and she's talking to us about it. Like, wow, we are like this, we are so we we are the gap between experts. And people on the in the on the ground doing their work is now sh has shrunken. Which, by the way, is such an important uh, topic and observation. Just, just you know, what would drive me crazy when I was a teacher was the the gap between what was happening in the classrooms and what, what the researchers were looking at. But we're using vehicles like Yellow Book, Book Chat and other things to sort of bridge that gap. And for, for those people doing different things to sort of understand each other and to create this ecosystem where we can learn from one another and collaborate, which by the way, um, is the, the sort of the topic of today, although we're talking about Yale specialists working with teachers, it's the same thing with everybody all around in the space, just learning from one another. And I think that that's, that's so key. So I'm glad you brought that up as well. Yeah. It's all about the community. Wow. I'm, it's really about, if it's really about the teachers that I've met on Twitter that have, have changed my life and my career with the way they've shown with simple snap, like a snap of their photos. I'm like, Oh my goodness. I never thought about doing that before. Like, yes, thank you. Absolutely. So as we come to the conclusion here, Tan, uh, you've mentioned a lot of people, a lot of authors, but I think as people um, have listened to this episode, they are uh, acutely aware that you also are an incredible resource. So I'd love to hear more about how people can learn more about uh, the work that you're doing and how they can find out about, um, about what you're uh, providing to the community because you're providing a lot. So where can they go to find more information? Well, thank you. They can always, I'm always on Twitter at TanEOL Classroom. Um, and I'm also, I also write a blog and I have 90 some articles now. It's empoweringEOLs.com and it ranges from um, Weta articles, uh, the Weta manual, 
and it goes to like technology to to collaboration to literacy to vocabulary it talks about basically it's uh, it's everything that i've learned so far from my years of, of, of teaching els and i put all of my lessons into an article one article yeah i also want to um just close our conversation with a few quotes if possible connected back to seasons please do but before you do i want to say one more thing about uh about your blog it is extremely or your website i should say it is extremely well organized i used it to kind of inform some of the questions that i had for today's podcast oftentimes people who have websites have lots of information but it's kind of hard to find stuff not the case with yours um, and as you mentioned, there is a lot there. And I think much like sort of Larry's book, you can kind of figure out what it is that you're looking to learn more about and find it pretty easily. So I just wanted to let folks know that, um, that when they go there, they'll be able to find what they want. Oh, thank you. That took forever for, for me to figure out how to make it clean and make it simple and like EL teacher friendly. Well, you did it. So th thank you for that. Thank you. So going back to the, our, our idea of seasons, this is a quote by George Santanaya. It says, to be interested in the changing seasons is a happier state of mind than to be hopelessly in love with spring. And so as much as we love our warm spring and summer relationships, we have to remember that to, be in, to have a, a, a state of mind that is always interested in all the seasons, we really make um, life so much easier for our kids, so it make, makes our relationship bloom and blossom because we're not trying to. Here's another quote uh, by Reynold Reinberg. He says, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And that's why we can find, we can find ourselves in a happy state when we're interested in all the seasons, regardless of the temperature. That's great. That's a great way to close. And I'll just say that I, I consider myself a hardy New Englander growing up uh, close to Boston, and I've always appreciated the seasons. But I think I'm going to share that quote with my wife, who uh, who is uh, constantly <laughs> looking for springtime and has a hard time with the cold. I know that we're talking about our students when we uh, and, and our relationships to teachers with these quotes, but I think that there's a lot we can take from yes, that. Yes, tell it there's um, always a way to be interested in the changing seasons. Absolutely. That's hard to say, though, when it's negative five degrees and the wind's going <laughs> 20 miles an hour. But I, but I, will, I will attempt to do, to do it. Um, well, with that, Ton, I, I just want to express my gratitude uh, to you for not only coming on, but really, you know, none of this was, uh, was rehearsed. We had some questions that we wanted to ask. We really kind of went rogue here, I think, in a good way. And you were really able to provide us with some honest, actionable uh, strategies and information. And uh, I have to also say that your ability to create metaphors and analogies uh, and retrieve quotes that are, um, that are both prolific and pertinent to the topic that we're talking about are quite impressive. And um, I really appreciate that and everything else you do. So thank you so much. Well, it's so great to have you as a host of the podcast because I could tell you're a teacher. And it's great to have a teacher talking to another teacher about shop, about our work, because it's really about the kids. So thank you for giving me an avenue to support teachers. My pleasure, my friend. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. 
Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.